Hey guys, it's me. We are live. Welcome Facebook. Welcome LinkedIn. Welcome YouTubers. Guys, thank you for coming into another day of VM Nation. Guys, this is going to be a great episode. Um, as you know, I come from an Italian household. And if you see, say the word whistleblowers, you're bound to get shot. Or, or So we're going to be talking about whistleblowing, the facts, and then the fallacies behind it. So, guys, I just want to thank our sponsors for today. Thank you, Soldier Girl Coffee, which I'm actually drinking right now. Um, it's, it's a veteran company, a veteran female-owned company that hires nothing but veterans and helps with veterans that are struggling with PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, and stuff like that. So definitely, if you love coffee, and now they came out with a brand new coffee with CBD in it. So if somebody's looking to have, have coffee, but also want to relax at the same time, definitely check out Soldier Girl Coffee. All right, guys, this is going to be a great episode, like I said. You know, coming from New Jersey, coming from uh, an Italian household, as soon as you hear whistleblowers, you're like, you know, snitches get stitches. <laughs> so we're going to talk about all that fun stuff. Jackie, how are you doing today? Well, good. And I don't have any stitches. So that's uh, maybe even better news right now. <laughs> now, talk, you know, how to tell us a little bit about, your, about yourself and where you're from and how you started doing what you do now. So it's, a, it's been a long, strange trip. Um, I grew up in New York, so I, I get what you're saying about uh, snitches get stitches. I've heard that uh, many times in my life. Um, but I also believed in telling the truth and came from a background that really valued honesty and speaking up, because if you don't speak up for other people, then there's no one left to speak up for you. So I really wanted to, um, or I feel like I've always embraced that. I embrace service. My family were immigrants, Eastern European immigrants to the U.S. I joined the army, I think out of that sense of patriotism. I'm a social worker by background. So I was an army social work officer, spent most of my career working with veterans. I was at the Pentagon when I felt like there were attempts at con or what I thought were conflicts of interest with contracts and I made my first disclosures and that side railed my career and I ended up um, becoming a whistleblower um, very unintentionally. I, I didn't set out to do that. It wasn't what I thought I was doing and then um, ended up founding Whistleblowers of America because I had a real sense of how peer support and uh, that that level of interaction and that intervention was so useful when we were trying to do things with suicide prevention and combat vets who were dealing with PTSD. And um, we needed a trauma-informed perspective for when people deal with a hostile work environment. So here we are. Okay, so now go back. Um, way back, we're going to hop in the way back machine. Talk to us about your recruiting story and why you decided to join the Army. So I decided to join the Army. It was um, interesting. It was a, a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel who said to me, you know, if you want to work with veterans, you should be one. And I thought, well, that was good advice. 
So I joined the Army. Um, it was uh, just as the first Gulf War was ramping up, and I thought I had this background in combat trauma. I had spent, um, well, by then, almost a decade working with um, Vietnam veterans. So I had this background in understanding PTSD, and I wanted to apply what I knew to the active duty population. And so I joined, I ended up joining the Army. I looked at the Air Force, but I, you know, the Army won. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of veterans um, have a hard time opening up to non-veterans. You know, because like, even like, I, you know, I have a lot of friends that are first responders. You know, there's the thin blue line and there's a thin green line. You know, that I can open up to a vet. We could just be, meet each other and five minutes later we're talking deep stuff. And then, you know, I can have a friend that's not a veteran that I've known for 30 years and all everything is surface level conversations, right. you know? So now how was it, you know, joining the military and then seeing it from the other side? What was that like? So that was interesting. Um, you know, it was, it was um, one set of circumstances working with combat Vietnam veterans whose war was very different, and then actually putting on the uniform myself and living it from the inside out. And just having that experience, I think, helped broaden my perspective. I mean, I think there's there's some value in having clinicians who were not veterans, who are more of a blank page, if you will, when it comes to understanding what somebody's been through, because the what I've seen veterans do is they compare, right? My trauma was worse than yours, or you were um, you were in Quezon as opposed to Fallujah. So, you know, this was worse than that, or, or you know, oh, those guys had it easy, we had it rough. So if you, you take that out of the equation, I think providing that level of, of therapy, there's some value to that. Um, but then, you know, when you've been in the Army and you you kind of know all the nuances and you see things maybe a little bit more um, special from, from that inside out. You understand the hurry up and wait. You understand um, the role of the NCOs, the officers, the, the differences in duty stations. And you see it, you feel it, you breathe it, you smell it. So I think that's um, some of the differences that I would see, you know, whether, and, and sometimes it's just personal preference, you know, when you're trying to hire a clinician, and I would say, you have a right to interview who's going to be your treatment provider, you should take that into consideration, you know, how are you going to find the right clinician to work with you? I mean, some um, survivors of military sexual trauma are maybe only going to be comfortable with female therapists. Some men might only be comfortable with a male therapist, especially, you know, we talk about um, intimacy issues that come with trauma, that you're you're going to experience those things and um, maybe not want to talk to, you know, one type of clinician or another type of clinician. And there's all kinds of issues that go into, I think, finding the right therapist. You just have to find the person you're comfortable with regardless. Now, I, I was in the military from 1986 to 2012. Um, and when I first got in, I wish I would have known now what, I, you know, then what I know now. 
But if, you know, if one of our guys went to go see the, the psychologist or the shrink, you know, everybody would break their chops and, you know, everybody would kind of start looking at him side-eyed um, to where now we know that, you know, now we didn't know the suicide rates back then. We didn't know what was going on. And now, you know, I just, I just not even 15 minutes ago, got off the phone with a, a, a retired Lieutenant Colonel. And he said, you know, this is something I, that's starting to get better, but I think that we need to get rid of the stigma of mental health and that, you know, I, I, I interviewed a sergeant major, a command sergeant major last month. And he says, I go to my therapist appointments in my uniform on purpose, mm-hmm. just so the, the young privates and the specialists know that it's OK to get help. If right. he's a sergeant major and he's getting help, me being a corporal, it's OK for me to get help. What are your thoughts? No, I, I, I think that's great. You know, leadership should be commended for not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Um, you should get help. And I think everybody should have um, an opportunity to, um, at some point in their life, um, engage in some kind of a therapeutic process, because I think it does help. It is um, valuable to really sit down and, and think about and focus on what what you're going through emotionally and and sort of figure out how that plays into the decisions you're making, the resilience that you have. Um, I've often said you cannot um, deploy your resilience, right? You're, we talk about resilience as the bounce back. Well, if you don't have an inflated ball, there is no bounce. The same thing for people. You have to be have that preparedness, that readiness, right? We talk about military readiness. We need to talk about military resilience in in some of the same ways so that there is that bounce back for when bad things happen, because that happens to everybody. Um, you know, there's a, I call it the slippery slope of life. And at the top of the mountain, you have the snowflakes, then the snowballs, and then the avalanche. Well, where do you want to be? You want to catch a snowflake on the tip of your finger? Um, you know, you can get hit in the face with a snowball. It may hurt, leave a mark, but you recover. Um, but if you're at the bottom of the avalanche and you're going to be buried alive, that's where suicide happens, right? That's where substance abuse happens. Um, that's where some of the bad stuff, you know, the divorces, the homelessness, the unemployability. If you're only ever at the bottom of the mountain um, dealing with the avalanches, you need to get back to the top of the mountain, deal with those snowflakes, and 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 get people to a point where they can maintain and sustain their resilience and and have that bounce back capability, if that makes sense. Yep. So now, how did you get involved in the whole whistle blowing thing? Uh, you don't have to go into deep detail because you know I, I respect op- opsec, so I totally get it. So, you know, can you just give us a synopsis of what happened and what really ignited your fire? Yeah, so um, I was the director for the Defense Suicide Prevention Office when I felt like um, another senior executive was trying to manipulate me, coerce me, um, intimidate me into changing how some of the contract money for suicide prevention was being awarded at DOD. Um, There were contracts at VA where her, 
her former company. She had been vice president there, later found out her husband did some development through that company. I just saw that as conflicts of interest and favoritism. And when I objected, I felt like the intimidation and the harassment and all those things, the bullying got worse. So I went to another senior person. I made my disclosure, thought that would take care of it. And then I ended up um, months later uh, being removed from my position as the director. Um, and this person had chaired the evaluation panel that made that recommendation to replace me with somebody else. And that's when I made my first phone call to an HR human resource person, told her the situation. And she said, well, you know, there are some things I cannot confirm or deny for you but I would go with that. And she told me how to make a, um, she called it a PPP. And I remember at the time thinking, I don't even know what that is. And she said to me, well, you don't need to know. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna send you an email with the links to the websites that you need to contact and make a whistleblower report. And I remember thinking, I'm not a whistleblower. She doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> but then I started to read the things she had emailed me and I thought, oh, I need to learn how to do this. And when I tried to learn how to do this, and I thought, well, there's got to be directions, instructions, other people who can tell me what they did, how they went through this process. And I really couldn't find anybody. So that's, that's when I, you know, I really started to do this search. And it took almost a year before somebody else stepped forward and said to me, oh my gosh, I wish I knew what you were going through. I've been going through some of the same stuff and I know other people. And, you know, we started, you know, meeting in the hallway, on a different floor, in the courtyard, in the subway station. You know, we were doing all this, what felt very um, secretive because we were so afraid of the reprisal if we got caught. And, and then it just kind of grew from there, like one person knew another person knew another person. And then one day I had posted some things on LinkedIn about whistleblowing and somebody from another agency said, oh my gosh, um, I'm going through some of the same things you're describing. So her and I connected, um, she was federal law enforcement and I think also a veteran if I remember correctly, maybe Navy. And as we got off the phone, she said to me, you know, I've been sitting here with my revolver on my desk. And I thought, oh my goodness, this really is suicide prevention. All those peer support skills, everything I knew about suicide prevention, trauma, like all of a sudden this window opened up and I called an attorney and I said, we need to incorporate whistleblowers of America. We need to really do this and step up and fill this space. And so that's what we started doing. And I started to take a lot of the research I knew about trauma and start applying it to a hostile work environment, to when they talk about animus, retaliation, reprisal, harassment, discrimination in the workplace. The whistleblowers I talked to use some very similar language to combat veterans. You know, they talk about being in a battle for their lives. Um, one lady called it being professionally gang raped um, being a prisoner, being held hostage, um, you know, losing everything in a battle for my life. I mean, when I think about the terminology that whistleblowers use, 
it may be more on a, um, you know, on an emotional abusive level than when we think about the physicality of combat trauma, but the, the betrayal of trust and, and some of those same emotional issues, the moral injury, I found to be very similar. Now, um, uh, and I'm going to play devil's advocate because that's what I do, you know, come, you know, because I'm, I'm always interested. Like for me, if I ever went to court, I'd be the worst juror in the world because I would listen to the defense and I'd be like, yeah, I can. I get it. And then I listen to the other side. and be like, yeah, I get it. So I'd be the worst juror to make a decision. But I always like to, you know, look at both sides. Now, there has also been a lot of um, people that have been accused of something mm-hmm. and found innocent and their life is ruined. So from my opinion, if I call somebody out mm-hmm. and, you know, saying they did something to me, I should also be held liable. So if, if, if I call out and say that, you know, so-and-so did this to me, and his name is out in the public. My name should be out in the public also. But that's just the way I feel about it. Because I feel, you know, a lot of people get ruined. And then the person, even if they were found innocent, their reputation is shot. And the person that accused them, you don't even hear anything about them. You know what I mean? Well, so the the data that's out there and the research that we look at um, from, like, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey uh, you know, most of the studies are um, government. So when I talk about the federal employment viewpoint study that comes out, you know, the fear of reprisal is great. Like what what makes people bystanders? What allows fraud, waste, and abuse to happen? And we know um, through global studies that corruption costs trillions of dollars every year globally. Um, um, what was it? The the GDP, five uh, percent of the G- GDP is lost to corruption. Um, th- those are powerful numbers, and we know that retaliation happens, even though we say it it doesn't. And corporations try to deny it, governments try to deny it, because of the um, you know the False Claims Act. Government has recovered billions of dollars because of whistleblowers over the last 10 years. Like, I think it's like $6 billion. Um, The EEOC has awarded millions because of discrimination. The um, Office of Special Counsel has sided with whistleblowers. I mean, and those cases are not easy to win. I mean, MSPB probably awards 10% of the cases it hears. So, it's really hard to bring a whistleblower case. And there's a lot of imbalance in the in that justice because usually the perpetrators are being defended by large government organizations or large corporations. So their attorneys and legal fees are in-house. The whistleblower is out of pocket. Um, you know, I was just talking to somebody today who said after having sunk almost $70,000 of her own personal money into her case against her agency, the agency was willing to settle. And she was willing to settle with the agency because it would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars more to take the case to the next level. So and I've talked to whistleblowers who were over $100,000 in personal expenses. So 
you end up spending your retirement money, your, you know, your TSP, your child's college fund, your borrowing money from family and friends. Um, all of that is a toll that the whistleblower takes on. And the, um, you know, the perpetrator, again, is usually represented and defended by the organization. So they don't suffer the personal sacrifices and the costs that the whistleblower does. So I think we have to, you know, you have to peel back the onion on that and really look at how do these cases move through judicial proceedings and see those imbalances to really know what's at stake for who. Um, are there people who make false allegations against somebody? Of course, I don't deny that that happens. Um, and one of the things I try to help people do is just make sure you know what your evidence is. Make sure you know what you're complaining about because we don't want people to be on the wrong track because that hurts everybody, right? I mean, we, we hear about that with military sexual trauma cases. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you make a false complaint against somebody or you haven't gotten the evidence or you haven't done what you needed to do or you wait five, 10 years to make your complaints, and your evidence isn't as fresh as it could be, then you risk that, you know, those counter allegations and the um, uh, the denial and the weighing of the evidence changes. Um, you know, when we talk about gaslighting and how the victims get gaslit, that's that's a strong piece of this because we we look at how evidence gets valued and who and their position of authority, we tend to believe the higher person of higher authority than the victims who usually are of less, of less social standing in an organization or in a culture. So I, I think those are all factors and probably dozens more that come into play when you're trying to adjudicate these cases. You know, in, in the last year, and I'm not gonna say, cause I'm not about to get sued by anybody, <laughs> but there's two big court case. There's one big court case that is going on right now, as far as everything that went on overseas a little while ago, and then also uh, I think it was this year or last year when a gentleman from the Navy got in trouble for whistleblowing with the whole COVID nineteen thing, and and it came out to light that he was just trying to save lives. Mm -hmm. So now, do you see it starting to get a little bit easier for people to start speaking out and, you know, and actually trying to affect change? Yes. Yeah, so I, obviously, I would love to think that we're addressing the stigma against whistleblowers. Um, but I think that's that is still a, a, a primary issue that we deal with. Right. Is that going back to the stitches analogy? when you look at what the dictionary definition is of a whistleblower, it's very negative, yeah. right? It's, it's snitch, rat, tattletale, mole, um, as opposed to relator, ethicist, protector, defender, like we don't think of whistleblowers and all the things that they do save. So I, I do think that we need to change the culture around even just the language and the taxonomy um, surrounding whistleblowing and the what it does do and what it doesn't do and and improve that because I do think that addressing the stigma 
is a big part of that. I'd love to say that I'm hopeful that we'll see changes in the future. But, um, you know, for example, you know, we're almost a year into this, this administration and we still don't have a, a Merit System Protection Board fully staffed. We haven't had an MSPB since January of 2017. So that to me is, you know, that justice delayed is justice denied. We can, we can talk about wanting justice. We can talk about equality in the workplace. We can talk about diversity and inclusion. But until you walk that walk, it's, it's again, it's just that talk. And until we do things to really change that culture, have an MSPB or let federal employees kick out to jury trials, hold um, corporations accountable, have juries and and justice systems that can compensate for these pecuniary damages for pain and suffering, um, make people whole when they've been retaliated against. But these systems are, are still hard and the evidence required um, not easy to obtain and not easy to prove. And so part of what I try to do is help people explain whistleblower retaliation and how that causes psychosocial damages. I mean, it, it reminds me of when we tried to prove combat trauma in the early 80s. There were a lot of people who didn't think PTSD should be a legitimate diagnosis and that, you know, this war neurosis and combat trauma you know, it was malingering and faking, right? I mean, how hard was it and is it still for veterans to get service connected for PTSD? Um, for combat trauma, much less if we were trying to get them service connected for military sexual trauma or for bullying and hazing and these other things that happen in the military as well. I mean, I've mostly been talking about it in terms of government employment, but military is government employment. And we know that there are toxic command climates out there. A good part of some of the suicides are command climate. It isn't necessarily just the op tempo of deployments. There are all these other factors that relate to suicide. And I think some of these things play into that. So when you ask me about stigma and stigma reduction, I think we, we've, we've done some things, but I think there is a long way to go. Now, like you said, I've interviewed, I've had a lot of people on my show um, I'm doing six shows a week, so I stay busy. And, you know, somebody, I was on the show and they were talking to me about military sexual trauma, you know, that over 10,000 cases last year were reported. Um, 3,000 of them were men, and only 1% of men will go for help, even though they've been sexually assaulted. So, you know, military sexual assault is not just for women. It's men and women have, have you know, and it's becoming a, a big problem. So how does somebody that's struggling with this, say it's an E1, E2, they're just getting into service and they're having a problem with their DI, drill instructor, um, female, male, doesn't matter. Where do they go? How do they uh, get in touch with you guys? What is their step or the instead of just stewing in, in, in the crap and eventually maybe just hanging themselves because they don't know where to go. Right. No, I mean, you raised some excellent points about all of this. So the first thing I would always say to people is we have to, again, remember my snowflake? Sexual assault 
doesn't necessarily happen in isolation. Um, the, the walking down the street, stranger grabs you um, and you're assaulted, you're raped, you're, you're abused. Um, that is only a percentage of when we talk about military sexual trauma. Very often it happens within commands, people know each other, but there are behaviors that precipitate the assault. And that's where I go to things like the bullying, the hazing, the culture. What does that command tolerate and allow? Um, when is only kidding and only joking a serious offense? And if you're offended by something, how do you or your colleagues sort of band together and raise that issue of being offended? How do you bring that to the light of day? Well, there are a couple of things you can do. Um, one of the things I always used to tell the junior enlisted is the chaplains are a great source of adult supervision. Go to the chaplain. Um, they can represent you, take on a case. They don't have to document anything. It could be a very confidential type of conversation. Um, you can go to law enforcement and be a confidential. You can make these confidential disclosures and reports. You can go online to the Office of the Inspector General and report. You can go to the Equal Opportunity Commission and make a report. There are anonymous ways of um, making these reports where you don't have to disclose your identity or you can let it be known um, that these kinds of things are going on without really having to risk your further retaliation or your career, you know, putting everything in jeopardy when all you're trying to do is solve a problem and you don't want it to get worse. There are ways to, to go about handling that. Okay, so then what do you do? Um, Shirley gets out of the military, starts getting some help from, um, you know, private, private help, you know, try, you know, maybe she's going through some addiction issues or whatever, but she starts getting help and then she wants to let it known the things that happened to her. Does she have a, a recourse or is once you're out of the military, it's over, it's a wrap? Well, so you can always go to the OIG, the Office of Inspector General, um, the Office of Special Counsel, I believe is, for, I know it's former employees, but I believe also former military. Um, so you can always bring those issues back and work with a therapist to, um, who can guide you through those processes as well. Hopefully they're knowledgeable in um, whistleblower retaliation and the laws that, um, you know, that deal with military, especially military sexual trauma. Um, if they're treating it, they should know more about the structures and the, um, the systems that surround it. But now if you get out, is there any way to hold somebody that's still in accountable? Well, I, I, again, I think that's, um, you would have to then go through like the OIG or, um, you know, the military police, whether it's like CID and CIS, um, you'd have to make a report through that chain or reach back out to a, a SAP or a sexual assault response program coordinator and and just see what kind of help they're willing to offer you um it very much may depend i mean we've seen cases where somebody's gotten out and the perpetrator was still active duty and they've gone back and tried to still get that person held accountable 
for what they did. It's not always easy, but finding the right level of help, support, again, you know, the legal, um, uh, being able to hire an attorney, most junior enlisted can afford civilian attorneys, especially if they're just getting out, looking for new careers, going to school. You know, and the one other thing I would mention that people don't know about very often is that if you've gotten, um, if you've been traumatized in the military and you've had this command issue, you can be service connected for sexual assault, but personal trauma is a terminology that the VA uses where you can be service connected for being bullied, hazed, um, you know, um, those kinds of um, discriminated against. There are ways to get service connected as well, besides just for combat trauma or being deployed. You know, most of us think of PTSD and, and military in that one vein, but there are other types of trauma where you can be service connected. So then, but okay, now, because that's, I'm a disabled veteran, I'm at 80%, but you know, I had to show all kinds of proof of me getting hurt. I had to have counseling statements, written statements, personal statements. What does a person do if they just say, I, I, I was bullied? Where do you, you know, do they ask for personal account statements or how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, you would still need to develop your evidence, right? With either like lay statements, police reports, command climate surveys, um, you know, any kind of disclosure that you may have made, emails, friends that you told, family that you told. I always tell people if there's a way to make a record of something, a record of a conversation, even if it's, um, you know, if it's exculpatory notes to yourself, you know, you have a, a notebook and you write in your log, you know, oh, on, on this date, this happens. And and you keep a record of those things, right? You do it in paper, you do it on your computer, um, you email a note to your girlfriend, and you say on this date, this is what happened. Those things become evidence for the VA. And there are different levels of evidence, um, but it's the, for VA, when you're the claimant, you are, it's the least level of evidence. So it's preponderance. Whereas when VA, denies your claim, they have to have clear and convincing evidence. And when you appeal it, you have to be able to say that they were wrong in their, in their, um, in their denial because they didn't meet, you met your level of evidence. So some of those nuances play out with the VA. And of course, um, you know, I know a lot of people get denied and they have to appeal, or now you can do supplemental claims. I mean, they've changed the process from you know, when you and I were in, um, which was also a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so now, but, how do we find you? How can we get in touch with you? How can we support your mission? So whistleblowersofamerica.org is, um, we're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn. We have our own website. You can write to us through Whistleblowers of America, right through our website. Um, and, you know, we, we try to help mostly what we're focused on employees with employment related issues. So if you're a, a veteran and, and things happen to you while you're in the military and you're, you're trying to uh, go through that kind of a process, 
happy to talk about, um, you know, if you were a whistleblower in the military, how do you get service connected? How do you make, a, if you're still active duty, you know, what are the, the chains for, for getting that claim in? Mostly what we do is the peer support stuff. We can connect people to other people who have had common experiences and are just looking for somebody to talk to, um, get advice from. Um, you know, that ventilate, validate is a very important component of peer support. And understand the, what I call the toxic tactics of retaliation. Understand what's gaslighting, mobbing, marginalizing, shunning, devaluing, double binding, bullying, counter accusing. I mean, those are some of the main facets of things that we deal with and we talk about with people so that they understand what they're going through. And I think that helps them see that they're, they're not weak, they're not crazy. Um, it's not them, but that they've been victimized by something. And we try to help them cope with that and build up their resilience. And, and, and for them to know, even though they might not see everybody that's part of Whistleblowers of America, to know that there's a network out there. I think that's really sustaining. Well, if we could save one life, then that, I'm all about it. Um, thank you so much for coming on. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Carrie Marie Beavers of Soldier Girl Coffee. Thank you for what you do. It's, it's, I know it's not easy being a woman veteran entrepreneur. <laughs> so I give you all credit in the world. Coffee is truly amazing. I love the taste of it. I drink it every day. Um, thank you so much for hopping on. I'm going to send you the link if you want to push it out today. And then I'm going to push it out again in another eight weeks. And it'll go out on 12 different platforms, up to 1.4 million veterans. So if we could even get a couple people to say, I need help, then it's all worth it today. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's been part of my journey, too, is, is just to, you know, to know what it's like when your life gets sidetracked, right? It doesn't end up to be what you thought it was going to be, but there's still hope and an ability to reinvent what you do and how you do it. And I love hearing stories. And when people call me back that we've talked to over the years that have made that transition and they have found something else that they care about, I think we have done that, you know, that one starfish, we've saved that life. Um, so thank you for this opportunity. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Um, anytime we can help somebody, that's what I'm all about. I love it, guys. Go to our brand new website, www.verticalmomentumpodcast.com com so you'll be able to follow us and what we're doing and help us save some more veterans lives vm nation thank you guys and remember vertical momentum the only way to go is but up have a great day guys catch you on the flip thank you for joining us today please hit subscribe and share please feel free to leave us a comment